Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight we've got Akshan Kamalik and the Paths Uncovered podcast plus Monash Yini's Shingu on the Age of Surveillance. I'm Ro Murray and tonight I'm joined by Vanessa and Dan. Hey. Vanessa, how's tech treating you this week? Very well, thank you. No dropouts. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Very positive step forward. Dan, how about you? Oh, so many dropouts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even start me. I'm throwing my computer out the window tonight. Oh, no. So you've been tempted to hoik the window and do a bit of a frisbee. That's it. First day back in the office and I just want to chuck it off the 19th floor. <laughs> oh, no. Is there any solution in sight or are you just going to have to battle through? Different job, I think, is probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good start. No, no. I love my job. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Anyone who might be listening from different my work. Different job with a laptop. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it. Let's move that, move that guy into a different department. That's fine. <laughs> I love it. Well, speaking of very important jobs, on to news, Vanessa. News. So, Australian school students have been at the study of the latest research by the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales. They have found that four in five school kids, some from as young as four years old, own at least one digital device and almost a third are allowed to take them to bed every night. This is a very different childhood than we had, isn't it? <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. Parents say they're finding their children's digital habits are harder to govern once they own a device themselves. And two-thirds of those studied also said that negotiating this usage led to conflict. Uh, 90% of parents conceded that they were themselves distracted by their own devices. Guilty. Mm, yeah, absolutely. not shocked by that little yeah. finding. <laughs> so commentators around the study have flagged that there's a need to provide solutions rather than just alarmist updates around the usage habits of this generation and that devices distraction in adults is often related to workplace expectations, which is an entirely different challenge. Now, we've seen a lot of positive changes in that space. In France, you've had people with the right to log off and be uncontrolled contactable outside of work hours. That's a really interesting way of solving this sort of problem. Mm. But uh, I don't know how we're going to unionise the school kids away from their devices. So <laughs> that's a slightly different problem. Well, that's it, something that they want. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm an old lady and you should try and get me off my switch sometimes. Like once I pick that up at the end of the night for a bit of a fiddle. Mm. <laughs> you can imagine the school kids unionising just to, to lobby their parents for more access just to devices. Well, that's yeah. it. Yeah, they're going to want more, not less, let's be honest. Yeah. Oh, fascinating uh, struggle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the ACCC has had a few things to say about the Apple and Google app marketplaces, and frankly, they seem to have too much power in Australia. Obviously, each of the tech giants operates their iOS and Android app store that together are basically an effective duopoly in Australia. And because they also compete in those markets with their own apps, it does give them the ability to self-preference. So today, the ACCC has announced that both Apple and Google may face fresh regulations in Australia now that a very long standing five-year inquiry into this duopoly has concluded. So it'll be a really interesting one to watch to see if they do make any serious structural changes or if it's going to be a little bit of a toothless tiger thing and a bit of rhetoric to justify a very large report. I mean, there's a lot to be said for the conveniences of simple app marketplaces where things are all in one place. Absolutely. I mean, we're going 
into that territory of how they're treating the smaller players. Exactly. And we talk about Epic Games, you know, they're not really a small player, but obviously the kind of back and forth between them and Apple has been interesting to watch nonetheless, but I mean, who knows how that's going to end up. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, speaking of Apple, Dan, oh, you had a few things you were keen to a- chat about tonight. A- absolutely. So Apple have released iOS 14.5, and the big news with this particular release is that the IDFA identification for advertisers has been switched on. So we've talked a few times over the last few months and possibly I think almost the last year about how Apple are changing the way that advertisers can access the data on your apps in your phone and actually make it an opt-in service. So you now will, when you've updated to iOS 14.5, you will get a notification or a request from each app to say, do you want to share your data with advertisers from this app? They're expecting at least 60% of users to choose not to. Mm. And that's going to be a big thing for most big advertisers have come out against it, but Facebook in particular have been vehemently against it. It's a big watch this space thing. I am going to. I think we'll be very interested to see who opts in. I certainly am going to be opting out for sharing my data to advertisers who really wants a creepy ad about something that you've just been Googling or talking about with your friends. Apart from that, Apple Watch's uh, ECG, so echocardiogram, uh, basically your heart monitor, is now available in Australia. So a little bit of good news if you like using your watch for monitoring your heart rate, but the big news is definitely the ID stuff, guys. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the ECG stuff, finally making it to Australia is a really interesting one because Australia often has so much tech lag. You know, back in the day, it used to be really hard to get DVDs or VHSs of the latest movies. And even though the world has opened up so much more, it's taken two years for technology that's been rolled out in huge amounts of parts of the world to actually hit our shores. And this ECG feature is still largely unproven like it can do some things but you know doctors are like look don't take it too seriously its capabilities are limited you're still going to want to use professional services if you've got a need in this space so it is about that curiosity (laughs) that you know the personal data narcissism yeah absolutely like let's be honest the step count on your phone is not the number of steps that you've taken today yeah so the app (laughs) tracking transparency is by far the game changer in the industry and that's that's the news that i think is just going to be fascinating to watch big financial ramifications yeah. for ad agencies, advertisers, the Facebooks of the world, the whole bit. So Yeah, and I'll be happy if I never see another ad for an online mattress. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Is that what happens when you start building beds in your free time? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So this man needs more mattresses. <laughs> Not even Google searching them, just thinking about them and they magically serve you up an ad. I know, no. It knew that I, it knew that I went to buy the timber and then it guessed that I was building a bed. That's what happened. <laughs> Not horrifying. Not at all. (laughs) Well, I don't know whether this is horrifying or exciting. At the moment, I'm a bit excited. But NASA has obviously had a really big week or two in the news. So obviously, NASA's Ingenuity helicopter has been getting a lot of attention this last week. If you haven't looked it up or YouTubed it or whatever, go do it. It's very cool that we've flown a little helicopter on Mars. Thank you. I like that you made that a wee for us. (laughs) That's definitely something we achieved. Do it. I personally did it. But there's also... An amazing new experiment, which the Perseverance rover produced a tiny amount of oxygen. And that's actually very, very cool. So on the 20th of April, about a week ago, the MOXIE device produced around five grams of oxygen, which was successfully extracted from the carbon dioxide Martian atmosphere. So that five grams is only enough to sustain an astronaut for about five minutes. But the technology has been a huge litmus test. It's proven it can be done. Do we know how long it took to generate five minutes worth of oxygen? Because you'd want it to be sub five minutes. (laughs) You'd want it to be pretty darn snappy, wouldn't you? You'd be 
I don't know, cranking a wheel <laughs> frantically. I, I didn't even like, think about that. I didn't even think about the time. I was just like, oh wow, five minutes of oxygen. Like five grams is quite heavy when you're like, you know, weighing mm. out some flour. And like, imagine that in oxygen. That's like quite a bit of oxygen. I'm okay with five minutes. <laughs> could, have t- could have taken them three weeks. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it does tick one of those huge boxes for future Mars trips, visits, all of the things. I'm, I'm secretly a bit excited, you know, mostly because we haven't dug up anything with sharp teeth mm. on Mars yet. So one step closer to terraforming Mars. I'm very excited. <laughs> it's very, very cool. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Our next guest, uh, Kangsha Malik, is a data scientist, a Microsoft AI MVP, and a director at Women Who Code. She's also interested in all the ways people find their ways into the field. Her exciting new podcast, Paths Uncovered, helps uncover the paths less taken. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me tonight. Fantastic. So, I'm really intrigued. Why did you choose to seek out people who've taken non-traditional routes into these tech career paths? It kind of stemmed a little bit from my own experience where I started, well, I did a degree in maths and statistics and I had absolutely no kind of technical background in terms of coding or anything. I just got kind of lucky in terms of getting a graduate position in a company that they're like, hey, we'll teach you all the tech stuff. Become a data scientist with us. You've got all the theory and everything. But then over like the last two years, I've gotten to meet so many different people and throughout Twitter and everything else, I've seen so many other people. I mean, I'm a very, I'm not too far away from a typical path into data scientist. So I kind of was always on the lookout for other people like myself who've not necessarily gone to computer science as a degree. And then I started seeing people who've done things like archaeology their whole lives and then ended up being data scientists. And I'm like, how did you do that? <laughs> like I was pretty close to it. I, I still struggled. I mean, like, what was the decisions there? So I I just got really interested in hearing about other people's perspectives and it spiralled from there. So, Akanksha, hi, my name's Vanessa. When you started to make your way into the industry, were the people you you were meeting to start with, were they predominantly coming from computer science backgrounds or what did a traditional pathway that you imagined look like to you? I don't know. I think I expected that. And don't get me wrong, the software development people that I met at the company, so it was a tech consulting company that I worked at, they did have that degree. I mean, I met people who were still in uni doing computer science while working part-time. But then people in my data team, like our lead data scientist, he was an engineer working in the Australian Defence Force, and he was working with submarines and stuff. Like, it was just really cool stuff that he'd done. It was quite related, and he was able to leverage those same skills in a different field and actually able to help across a consulting pool where it was like any kind of business could be helped with. So I got to see a lot of mixes of everything Mm. and it's definitely just been really interesting to hear people's lives and I've always just been intrigued by them. And have you found yourself really welcomed coming sideways in with other sorts of experience by those more expected backgrounds in that field? 100%. And it's definitely a thing that I've seen in the Melbourne tech community altogether. Like the Melbourne tech community is such a great place to be in. No matter what meetup you're going to or wherever you're at, everyone is just so, so welcoming. And it's the same whether that's at work or the people around everywhere else that I meet. I've definitely never felt kind of the outsider. It's more people look at it with a kind of thing of an interest nearly at the other end of hey, you've never done this. How did you learn? Like, it's kind of always that side of it. That's super cool. I was having a really good listen to your podcast early today, and there's been a bit of discussion more than once on transferable skills, and I was quite curious in terms of what you think are the most important transferable skills that people can develop, I guess, and put to the front of the queue when they're considering a career pivot into tech. I guess it depends 
depends on where within tech, but regardless of what position you're working on, I'm sure there's a hundred different skills, but I think number one for me, at least that I've seen, has been communication and that kind of definitely for me, like, I mean, I worked in a pharmacy while I was in college and that was great for me to kind of get away from just, I mean, every single day I spent 12 hours surrounded by the same people in college who did math and we talked math and that's all we did for a very long time. But then on a Saturday, I got to go talk about perfumes and how people's days are going. I'm like, this is amazing. That communication skill is really important in tech in terms of you're not going to just be working with people who understand the tech you're working on. You need to be able to communicate the things you've built and are obviously helping other people with to all the other people you'll be interacting with. So Akanksha, when you've spoken to recruiters or companies who are looking for people in these fields, have you found that there's a real openness to where they're recruiting or have you found maybe that they're focusing on different niche areas? They want to bring people over from the social sciences, for example. Anytime I've talked, I've mentored a few people kind of moving towards the data science careers. And what I've kind of seen from them is data science and a lot of recruiters, I mean, the people in the businesses that you kind of want to work for are the people who'd be like willing to take a chance a little bit as well. I feel like that's a personal opinion. But what I have seen them go through a little bit is the case of, hey, I've got all these non-teachable skills in a way. Like I can communicate really well. I'm happy to learn really quickly. And this is how I can do it. And then the tech itself will kind of come around with it. I mean, everything I've learned in data science has been on the job. And I've been thrown into projects before where I've just like started learning a whole new language on the fly. And that kind of stuff is learnable. Whereas a lot of more recruiters, I think, are starting to understand that and are valuing that, I think. It's very cool. Akasha, there's, I suppose, this idea that you to be more well-rounded and coming from somewhere else and coming into data science is a, is a great pathway. Are you seeing many examples of people who start out as data scientists and then bring these transferable skills in themselves? Or is there kind of a bit of a one-way street where people are coming into data science from elsewhere, but not so much the opposite? I've definitely heard of people moving away from data science. I haven't necessarily met them myself, but hey, this is a great idea. I'm going to go hunt them down now for a bit of podcast itself. <laughs> um, it's brilliant. This is what I came for, right? But... I think with the way the market is going of AI has just become this huge buzzword at the moment that it's just the go-to place to be. But kind of, I'm seeing a lot of people moving towards it. But I've definitely, like YouTube has been great in that sense. And I've definitely seen those kind of thumbnails of, hey, this is why I left a data science career. So it's definitely something really interesting, I think, to kind of find more about. So when people do think about making a career pivot, they often try and find people to tell them what are the unknown benefits and things that you might have to like or something about a job to be able to do that job really well. Was there anything that surprised you about pivoting your career in this direction? Yes and no. I think, I mean, it was just such an unknown to me that I didn't have any expectations that could be let down in a way. It really just was this whole new world and I'd kind of moved to the other side of the world. I was just like, right, let's just start learning, I guess. And that was a good thing for me, I think, where I started from such a blank table altogether of nothing in front of me mm. that I was able to really build up those skills. But for people changing careers, it is a little bit harder, I think, to unlearn some of the things or their expectations of things. So I don't, it's hard to kind of be like, oh, this is what I found really surprising. I guess the other end of it is that what I did find surprising, though, was how willing people are to go out of their way to help you, mm. especially to learn things. That was definitely something I didn't expect. I mean, I expected people to be helpful at work, don't get me wrong, <laughs> just not to the level that I was able to get help from them. So you came in very open-minded, and I understand not being surprised necessarily because you're in a position of curiosity and learning, but what about things that you found surprisingly enjoyable or maybe the bits of things that were a bit mundane that you didn't know existed? <laughs> Isn't this an everyday to find data cleaning? Data cleansing. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's going to be the kind of classic answer. I mean, 
I actually kind of enjoy it at times because it's interesting to see where things go wrong in data, like as in how data collection can go incredibly wrong. Not another date field, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those time differences, the things that are in UTC that shouldn't be. But yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting how even kind of outliers can be put in and how that collection process can go wrong. So I think it's been a great experience in like figuring out things that go wrong and then actually being able to help fix those later on and then preemptively see them in different projects. Super awesome. So obviously you've had a really specific personal experience within your own career and you've obviously gone through a huge amount of change moving from Canada and doing all sorts of different things and complete career pivot. So you've decided to embark on this amazing podcast project, Paths Uncovered. What was the catalyst for you going, yep, it's got to be a podcast? It was a 100% lockdown decision. (laughs) Some people went sound and you went podcast. Yes. It was literally one of those, like, what's people not doing? People aren't making podcasts, right? (laughs) No, it was literally a case of, hey, it's lockdown. This makes it really, really easy to talk to people everywhere across the world, right? Yeah. Literally, it was just sparked from that. And I say that, I definitely thought of this in lockdown. And then I was too lazy and procrastinating to actually be able to do it over lockdown. I just had no motivation. So it finally (laughs) happened once we got out of lockdown in January. More and more relatable. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Exactly. There are probably lots of fluffy slippers involved. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, like there's definitely been podcasts that have been like I've recorded, like I've re-recorded the video as well. But there's, I look pretty on the jumper. There's definitely blankets happening (laughs) on the lap and stuff. I love, absolutely love it. As a sort of a body of work, because you're around four or so episodes in, big picture podcast theme, what are you really hoping to give your listeners? Is it advice? Is it context? I think for me, I've always found kind of even just those interviews, like, I mean, even things like say, so the social network, the movie, like, it's just, I think it's always just been really interesting to see other people's lives. <laughs> um, yep. And people have always been intrigued by it, but it's, I've just found them super motivating usually. But then it's also the other aspect of, hey, everyone knows about Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook, all these really famous people, but they're the top one, what, like, what, 0.01% of the population in tech, and this is kind of a way to be like, hey, this is the 98% of the world of tech that are doing still amazing stuff, but aren't necessarily getting the recognition or having a platform to come around and chat about, so... It was a little bit of that and kind of selfishly it was just, hey, I want to meet people with cool life stories and talk to them. No, I love that. And are you starting to see, obviously the podcast is still quite young, but I'm curious to see whether there's any themes you're uncovering, whether it's what spurs people to make these changes. I mean, I think it's, it definitely is kind of very individual, but in almost every single one of them, there'll be something, a decision that they've made. I'm like, yep, I did the exact same thing. It was here. And it was like very different parts of our lives. So Jason, who's our second episode, he's had this amazing, long career like I mean he was working in VR technology back when I was about a year old it was really cool <laughs> to be able to experience that but then he'd be saying things like I was super uncomfortable in this scenario because I thought everyone else was smarter than me I'm like yep that was my whole degree that's exactly what I felt like <laughs> everyone will have their complete different paths and experiences but at the same time you'll find bits that will always kind of correlate with everyone else because it's the same struggle that everyone kind of goes through it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And what are your plans for the podcast? World domination? Oh yeah, for sure. Exactly. That's it. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I've never thought about this as being something that's going to be like, yes, it's going to get millions of like listeners every week. It never was anything like that. Even if I just get my family and friends to listen every two weeks, I'm okay with this because I got to talk to these people again very selfishly. And then in terms of plans, it is just to be able to provide a platform to give the voice to the people you don't necessarily get to hear from all the time. So, oh, yeah, I think there's definitely yeah. a 
place for that hyper niche oh. type of voices. Yeah, completely are, agree. Are mm. you getting much interaction from any listeners yet? Yeah, I mean, I was like genuinely shocked at the response. Um, <laughs> I really was. I mean, I think it's like right at, at like on the leaderboards in the Apple podcast at like thirty five in technology or something. I'm like, excuse you, no, no, no that doesn't sound right. Charting, I love it. After four like, episodes, what? very good. I don't understand this. <laughs> but no, the response has been great in terms of um, people being like, oh, actually, I related to this. This is exactly how I felt in certain parts of it. So, I mean, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. So it worked out well. That's completely exciting. Well, we wanted to give you a really big congratulations on taking a big step. And I'm sure you're going to meet a heap of interesting people over the path of this particular podcast. We've got some notes on where we can find your Paths Uncovered podcast, obviously through your favourite podcast app, Spotify, Apple, Google, SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher. And we can also follow you on Twitter at Paths Uncovered. Are there any other resources or ways people can find you that you'd like to point out? My own Twitter, I'm more than happy to listen to anyone have any feedback. I'm always very much open to it. So yeah, my own Twitter itself is Akansha Malik at 96. Fantastic. Well, we will share that and we'll share some links out on our Twitter after the episode. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Akshanka Malik, data scientist, Microsoft AI MVP, director of Women Who Code and the founder of brand new podcast Paths Uncovered. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me and chatting to me today. Thanks. Bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We're really excited to introduce our next guest. A Different Lens is a documentary series that draws on some really unique perspectives of academic and industry leaders across a huge range of disciplines. It's all about uncovering insights into the magnitude and complexity of the themes and challenges that will shape our future. I've started watching these, absolutely loving them, can't recommend them highly enough. This documentary series, A Different Lens, is produced by Monash Uni and is available online very easy to dig up and we'll share the URL on our Twitter later. But we wanted to hear more about episode 22 with the theme, The Age of Surveillance. We would like to welcome contributor and lecturer in communications and media studies, Dr. Shingu is here to tell us more. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. A really big part of your research is these vast digital media ecosystems and the democratisation of creativity. Obviously a complete oversimplification of that is using tech for good versus evil, with evil being both deliberate and accidental. I'm really curious to hear who plays a role in using these digital ecosystems and data to benefit society? These are very complicated, vast systems and often very much controlled by these really massive companies. A lot of them are multi-million dollar global companies such as Amazon and Google. And also they are working quite closely with very powerful governments in trying to implement in a range of urban settings and trying to improve public services across different areas. So it's really just we're talking about not one company or one kind of service. We're actually talking about quite immersive and very complex technological systems. Most definitely. A Different Lens is, of course, 22 short documentaries that are around 10 to 12 minutes each. What couldn't you squeeze into the episode, The Age of Surveillance? As you mentioned, it's highly complex, absolutely enormous. What would you have loved to have gotten in there? I think 
it's just the age of surveillance is also the age of heightened public awareness in this so-called post-human world that we're kind of edging towards. And I think it's really just about what does it mean for human beings living in these very extraordinary environments and how can we deal with that and what becomes of us and how can we move forward, really? We've talked about how massive some of the companies are involved in surveillance and that comes up all through the episode. I wonder how much we know as outsiders to these big technology companies about what sorts of factions are going on within them and fighting over what is the right amount of surveillance? That's a very good question because a lot of those companies, we hear their name on a daily basis, like Amazon and Google, we're very familiar with them. We know what they normally do. This new kind of surveillance service or function that they provide, often in collaboration with government, is actually very much under the radar of any forms of public recognition. So what they do, what they can do, or what they are doing in collaboration with governments are often unnoticed and unspecified. And so, for example, that a lot of the drone surveillance technologies were provided by Amazon, and they are by the U.S. police to deliver a police-related surveillance system and service. And these are the kinds of things we don't normally find out behind the curtain. And obviously the Amazon case has been brought into public debate and Amazon has since put down the service because of the criticism they received from the broader public in the US. But if we're looking at other contexts in China, for example, a lot of these things are really just military innovations and technologies being brought into the public everyday settings without people even understand what those technologies do to their personal data. So it's, it's quite creepy, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. Definitely. I think we can agree on that. We have seen in recent times workers at Microsoft lobby their company to not take up military contracts that involved a lot of surveillance. We've seen the loss of some ethics workers at Google, including Timnit Gebru. And we're starting to see workers inside these companies agitate a bit more publicly around things like surveillance or things that are happening in a more public sphere that are being pushed by the companies. Do you think that there's much weight behind these workers? Yes, I do. I think it's important that they make these things visible in the public eye because, as I explained, the technology itself is very complicated. It's very hard to understand from an individual's perspective about what they're trying to do. And often the system, the reason it's really quite significant is because the system itself goes to link up with other kind of technological systems in ways that has never happened before. So really, it's only by those tech workers working within those organizations to be able to share that information with the wider public to allow us to actually understand a bit more about what's actually going on. So I think it's really great that they're doing that kind of thing. But on the other hand, I would say that it's really worth for individuals to actually take an interest in technology. Because I, I think people are interested in Facebook, you know, the application 
based technology. And surveillance, we don't often pay attention, but really it's in our everyday life, every single minute, you know, you could be in a place where that technology is implemented. So we need to really understand how it works and how to analyze it. Absolutely. Just today, I was talking to a friend who works in a very, very, very large Australian retail chain. And today he was talking about all the different ways that they use facial recognition technology and cameras in store, mainly for security reasons. But while he was running down this enormous list of everything from number plates to photographs to scanning things at checkouts and things like that, it really did get me thinking from that consumer standpoint and consumers understanding the pros and cons of this big tech, big surveillance. I guess on a really practical level, what can people do to understand it better, get more involved? How can we, as a day-to-day person, influence this? That's a very good question. Again, I think, like I said, you know, it's quite uh, complex and it's really important because it's going to be much more normalised in our everyday life. I think for start, we need to be a bit more informed of these technological advancements and we need to have a lot more public discussions about how to use this technology in ways that accord with Australian commitments to information ethics and civil rights. We need to understand on top of that what are our digital rights. We also need to, I think, a good system like the crowdsourcing system to help researchers to understand how automated monitoring systems are implemented in our everyday public spaces, including traffic cameras and automated tracking systems like those used in 24-hour genes. These become really, really popular. And in some workplaces as well, there are a lot of pilot projects ramping up across different contexts in Australia. We just need people to actually share their experiences on these projects. So I know there's East Perth Public Safety Program. So there's a Facebook group organised by the community to actually share their views about the potential implementation of facial recognition technology in their area. And I think in other settings like in schools and in shopping malls, we also need people to somehow provide their individualised experiences so the researchers can actually gather that information to be able to understand a bit more about the implications of these. Are there any countries or jurisdictions that we can look to with more protections for everyday people from some of the examples that you've just described, like monitoring in public Mm -hmm. spaces or schools or workplaces? Mm -hmm. This is a very tricky one because in our research we obviously looked at those countries that had a lot more technological advancement and more ways of implementing these technologies. So we look at countries like China and also the US and European But what we found is that actually, even with very high standards of ethical regulations in contexts such as European Union, there's still a huge lack of attention paid towards the social implications of these technologies. I think it's down to the fact that actually the technology is really at a very early stage in terms of identification. There's a lot of actually problems in identifying accurately of faces out of a large crowd. So there are technological failures in some of these systems. But there's also, like I said, lack of public understanding of how their life is going to be managed and regulated and controlled by these systems. So there's that early stage of social understanding and assessment of that relationship with the technology. So across countries around the world, we haven't really found any country that has 
a fantastic model that we could actually learn from and to copy. But I think that is because it's really in its quite early stage, although it may seem very pervasive already. You see all these cameras popping up. But I think in terms of the social culture implication of that technology, we really don't have that much knowledge, which is why we're doing this research. And I guess why our conversations are so naive and, yeah, preliminary at the moment as well. Mm, And certainly seems like it's the time to be doing it before it's something that is en masse, absolutely out there everywhere. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, when I was watching your episode, there was a really confronting first line, which is, you can't change your face like you can change your password. Your face is always with you. And I think I'd been watching for about, oh, 20 seconds (laughs) and nearly had a heart attack. But then you come in and mention the intention of surveillance technology and how important that is. How can corporate decision makers, essentially the big wallet holders that really are going to be responsible for rolling this technology out, how can they ethically interrogate and implement these technologies? The question is, would they ever want to? (laughs) I, I think that is really a tricky question because I think for them, If we can keep the system as open and unregulated as possible, it suits their commercial intent to profit from the technologies in Mm. various settings. So I think for them, this is great at the moment that we don't understand and the system needs to be open and needs to be based on huge amount of data sets across different countries. But I think that liability issue is really lies in the hands of international networks of governments, not even just one government. It has to be a global collective action towards regulating and understanding facial recognition or other forms of AI. Because these massive amounts of data sets based on which these kind of surveillance is trying to or able to be the efficient on, they are really borderless. So you can't mm. just say this company or this government is liable for this kind of service. And that's the pre kind of AI era, I would say. In a future AI era, this is going to be very much dependent on how well a country or a company is able to collaborate with other people to then be able to develop actions to regulate in relation to ethical concerns. But the tricky issue here is that what do we consider as ethical concerns are very different across different cultures. So, for example, in China, privacy wasn't too much of an issue to the public. And that's why their government is able to implement this in a massive way. But if you look at other countries like Singapore, they have completely different standards. And Australia obviously had a very open democratic system in relation to ethical concern and all of that. So these are going to be very tricky terrain to maneuver. And I think these companies need to be a bit more open and a bit more culturalized in terms of their practices. So it's not just about innovation, technological specification. It's actually about culture, about the social norms in a particular society. They need to take interest in how other country, other cultures using that technology may have different responses to that particular technology. Mm, Definitely. Obviously, you're working in a very complex and rapidly emerging space. And thank you so much for your time where we've asked all sorts of enormous, (laughs) enormous questions and none of it's been straightforward. So A Different Lens is currently 22 short documentaries that are a bit over 10 minutes each, which can be found at lens.monash.edu.au. Other episodes 
cover the future of travel, the ageing population, bushfires, energy and the future of work. So thank you so much for joining us. A Different Lens contributor and lecturer in communications and media studies, Dr Shin Gu, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for having me. See you. So thank you so much to our marvellous guests this evening. It's been an absolutely great yarn with Akshanksha Malik and Dr. Shingu. And also we always like to throw in a little bit of a thank you to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. I'm Ro Murray and I've been joined with the marvellous Dan Salmon and Vanessa Taholka. Yay! Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.